0: Hello again. Right, what have I got for you today? Uh, Today, uh, this podcast is going to be um, based upon a lecture I gave recently about the formation of the pharyngeal arches, or the embryonic pharyngeal arches. Um, As usual, I'm going to try and keep this fairly brief and fairly sensible. And in fact, we've met the pharyngeal arches recently um, when we looked at the embryological development of the endocrine glands, we introduce them. Also if you think back to um, your embryology of the cardiovascular system and the development of those arteries that are leaving the heart those were called um, the aortic arches and those are linked to these pharyngeal arches. So we've covered some of this already so this really shouldn't take too long. What I'm going to try and talk about, I'm really going to try and answer some questions. So the questions would be Um, The pharyngeal arches, where are they and of course, embryologically speaking, when, when do they occur? What are they? What do they do? Why are they important? Um, So let's see, let's work through those. If you were to look at um, the embryo at about four weeks of development, and you may well have seen scanning electron micrographs of this, or if you're looking at the Enhanced podcast with the pictures, you should be able to see an image of one of the models that we keep in the anatomy lab. Um, You'll see some lumps around the developing, say, neck, head region of the embryo. So the embryo's obviously got a head end and a tail end, and by four weeks you can see the somite strung along the sides of the embryo down towards the tail, and at the other end we've got some lumps, um, and a particularly large lump anteriorly, which is the developing heart, so, uh, caudal, sorry, cranially to those, uh, we have a bunch of lumps, and those lumps are the pharyngeal arches. Those bumps, and there are bumps on either side, on the left side and the right side. So then, of these lumps, um, we can probably see maybe three sat there. And There are a number of pharyngeal arches, uh, and we number them: uh, the first, second, third, fourth. And sixth pharyngeal arches. The fifth kind of briefly exists, but regresses pretty quickly, so we don't really we don't really refer to it. We pretty much ignore that. Um, and you can the lumps that you can see are the first pharyngeal arch, second and third pharyngeal arches. They're pretty prominent. The fourth and sixth not so obvious. And in fact, the first pharyngeal arch has kind of two lumps to it on either side. It has a maxillary prominence. And a mandibular prominence and, and there's a clue there then in those terms, as to what structures the arches are going to go on and form <clears throat> um and then these uh these arches then so particularly the first arch um is around the developing mouth around the uh the stomodeum, and the second arch and third arch are uh a chordal to the developing mouth. So then as as a note there we, we're talking about pharyngeal arches here you may well commonly also hear the term branchial arches uh, branchial kind of referring to, to gills and branchial arch is probably more commonly used when talking about other uh, animals, when we talk about humans pharyngeal arch tends to be uh, the more common term but you could hear either So um, when the pharyngeal arches occur? Well, as I've already suggested, um, they appear around the fourth week, so early on in the fourth week these bulges start to appear, and you can see these bulges appearing on either side of that region. Um, And if you remember that by eight weeks, the embryo is morphogenically pretty much completely formed, you know, you can see recognisable structures of fingers and toes and ear and eyes and uh, Uh, mouth and neck and so on. So within the seventh week the neck is becoming smoothed and these pharyngeal arches are no longer apparent. So when do they occur? Well they occur between the fourth and seventh weeks really, between weeks four to seven, weeks four to eight. Um, But obviously by week seven um, they've gone on to form most of the structures that they're programmed to go on and form. So what are the pharyngeal arches? Well, as you've guessed, they are the future parts of the head and neck and they're going to contribute heavily to the development of the head and neck if not to the development of the central nervous system or anything like that. Um, but each arch contains within it a blood vessel, a nerve, um, a cartilage piece and um, a segment of muscle. And that's each of those items occurs within each arch. Um, The arch itself is pretty much formed from the mesenchyme um, partly from the mesenchyme of the paraxial and lateral plate mesodome which you'll remember we saw when we looked at the embryology of the musculoskeletal system Um, but also uh, neural crest cells migrate into the arches and differentiate into mesenchymal cells um, to form this, this bulge. The lump of the pharyngeal arch. The arches then are aligned externally with ectoderm and internally with endoderm. So inside them is going to be the future uh, pharynx and larynx and outside is going to be uh, the neck and the face. So back to this idea then that each arch contains a blood vessel. And I mentioned earlier that um, you'd met the aortic arches within the embryology of the cardiovascular system. So these aortic arches, which were also numbered, aortic arch one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, these arches are, part, are the blood vessels within each pharyngeal arch. So they supply the developing pharyngeal arches and they drain to the dorsal aorta. Uh, and they're going to form the adult structure of pretty much the great vessels which are leaving the heart, so the carotid arteries, pulmonary arteries, the aorta, um, brachiocephalic subclavian, and so on. Um, now, if you look at um, the aortic arches, one, two, three, four, five, six. As we've said, with the pharyn- with the pharyngeal arch, aortic arch five is pretty much. Um, disappears as soon as it forms, so we can ignore five. Um, Aortic arches one and two, um, they kind of degenerate fairly rapidly as well, but the remnants of the first pair of aortic arches are going to go on and form um, the maxillary arteries, crucial arteries to uh, supply many of the structures of the deeper part of the face and also to the connective tissue of the brain and what have you. They're also remnants of the um, the first pair of aortic arches are also going to form parts of the external carotid arteries. Um, And some of the parts of the second pair of aortic arches will remain as um, uh the small arteries within the ear, the stapedial arteries, but yeah, that's more detailed stuff. Hopefully you'll remember from cardiovascular embryology that the third aortic arches persist and they persist as um the common carotid arteries um and the internal carotid arteries. <laughs> The fourth aortic arch also persists, and this is an important one because the the fourth aortic arch on the left side is going to form that main artery leaving the heart and looping over to descend into the thorax. It's going to form the aorta. That's the fourth aortic arch is going to form the adult aorta. As we've said, the fifth aortic arch degenerates. Sorry, to go back, the fourth aortic arch on the right is going to remain as the subclavian artery, right? Passing to the right limb, the right upper limb. The fifth aortic arch then degenerates, ignore that. The sixth aortic arch, we're down really at the level of the lungs pretty much now. The sixth aortic arch is going to become part of the left pulmonary artery and part of the right pulmonary artery. And also importantly, it's going to become um, the ductus arteriosus, you know, that shunt linking the left pulmonary artery and the dorsal aorta, where blood is shunted around and uh, pretty much avoids the lungs. Okay, so... Um, importantly, then, aortic arches three, four, and six persist as internal carotid arteries, aorta, and subclavian and pulmonary arteries, and the ductus arteriosus. So, aortic arches are going to con- uh, the pharyngeal arches are going to contribute to a wide range of structures, not just those in in the, their face, but also to the neck and to the great vessels within the chest. Again, if, you have the, um, if you're looking at the Enhanced podcast and you've got the pictures, hopefully you've seen those diagrams then of how um, those nice, simple, um, kind of uh, a row of uh, aortic arches has contributed to the, uh, the mess of vasculature that we see in the foetus and the adult. Moving on then. I also said that each pharyngeal arch contains a nerve. This is very handy to know. This helps with the anatomy of the head and neck. Um, the cranial nerves um, and the understanding of the cranial nerves in anatomy is absolutely crucial. It's real standard anatomy. And of course, there are 12 of them. I can help you out with um, the understanding of uh, some of four of them by telling you about the embryology of these nerves within the pharyngeal arches. Of the pharyngeal arches one, two, three, four, and 6, they have cranial nerves 5, 7, 9, and 10 within them. So, cranial uh, pharyngeal arch 1 holds cranial nerve 5, the trigeminal nerve. Pharyngeal arch 2 holds cranial nerve 7, the facial nerve. Pharyngeal arch 3 holds cranial nerve 9, the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is a bit of a mixed bag, really. Um, pharyngeal arches 4 and 6 both contain parts of uh cranial nerve 10 the vagus nerve which you've met a lot when we were talking about um the thorax and the uh the abdomen even if you haven't met it yet in um anatomy of the of the head and neck okay so let's look at each of those um in turn now it's impossible really for me to talk about these nerves without talking about the muscle blocks in each pharyngeal arch, so um, I'll talk about those as we go through. So if we're looking at the first pharyngeal arch, which I've said is innervated by the trigeminal nerve, the trigeminal nerve has three major branches, the ophthalmic branch, uh, the maxillary branch and the mandibular branch. And you'll remember that I said the first arch initially has two prominences, a maxillary prominence and a mandibular prominence. Um, so you can see how the maxillary branches and the mandibular branches are linked to those. The trigeminal nerve is the main sensory nerve of the head and neck. It takes sensation from uh, you know, uh, parts of the face, teeth, nasal cavities, uh, the mouth, the palate and, and so on. Also, the first pharyngeal arch, the muscle block within it is going to go on and form the muscles of mastication. So it's going to go on and form uh, the temporal muscle, temporalis, uh, masseter, the lateral and medial pterygoids, um, and also um, some other muscles, tensor tympani, tensor veli palatini, um, the anterior uh, belly of digastric and mylohyoid, and so on. So this is the first arch. So those muscles are formed by the first pharyngeal arch. They will also be innervated by the nerve of the first pharyngeal arch, so by the trigeminal nerve. So the mandibular branch of the trigeminal nerve is the motor branch to the muscles of mastication. So you see how these muscle cells um, have migrated and differentiated and formed their final structures and they've taken um, the nerve fiber with them. Pharyngeal arch 2 then is uh, is very similar. Um, pharyngeal arch 2 contains the facial nerve and the muscle block from pharyngeal arch 2 is going to form those muscles of facial expression, um, the muscles that I'm using to move my much of my mouth and my lips and so on to uh, to talk. The muscles of facial expression then are going to be innervated by the facial nerve. So the motor part of the facial nerve is going to innervate the muscles of facial expression. They're all from pharyngeal arch 2. It also has sensory parts and, of course, parasympathetic innervation too. you remember those submandibular and sublingual glands and, and so on. Um, but that's pharyngeal arch 2. The third pharyngeal arch... Um, contains the glossopharyngeal nerve and the glossopharyngeal nerve is a very very mixed nerve it innervates all sorts of uh things um whereas some of the other cranial nerves are, are nice and simple and neat in uh, in where they go and what they do um now the glossopharyngeal nerve um will send parasympathetic fibers to the parotid gland although the parotid gland isn't formed from this arch it'll send fibres to the pharyngeal plexus Um, so it's sensory to um, the posterior part of the tongue, to the upper part of the pharynx and to that sort of region. Um, The third arch its muscle tissue, its future muscular cells goes on to form the stylopharyngeus muscle if you remember where that is, so stylopharyngeus is going to be innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve, okay? So descending further then, the fourth and sixth arches I said were both, uh, both contained part of the vagus nerve. Now the fourth arch contains the superior laryngeal nerve, which is a branch of the vagus nerve, the sixth pharyngeal arch, contains the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is a branch of the vagus nerve. Now, do you remember where those go and what those do? Well, generally speaking, um, those nerves are sensory to... The, the yeah the mucous membranes the linings of the the pharynx and the larynx, and they um, supply the motor innervation to the muscles of the pharynx, all the muscles of the pharynx except for stylopharyngeus, which we just mentioned, and also motor to the muscles of the larynx, um, and the soft parrot, palate. So the fibers pass to the pharynx via the pharyngeal plexus. So the pharyngeal plexus is formed by branches from the vagus nerve and by branches from the glossopharyngeal nerve. In terms of the distinct arches then, the superior laryngeal nerve, so the nerve of the fourth pharyngeal arch, um, that branches from the vagus just above the hyoid bone and passes around there to, uh, you know, round towards the larynx and the laryngeal cartilages and what have you. Um, So the superior laryngeal nerve just pops in there and gives uh, motor innervation via both external and internal branches, gives motor innervation to the cricothyroid muscle and sensory innervation to the laryngeal wall, sensory to the larynx above the vocal cords. However, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and you've probably heard this before, Um, You have to really know about this to have any understanding of why the nerve does what it does. Um, The recurrent laryngeal nerve, on the left side, it branches way down in the thorax. Um, It branches down by the arch of the aorta and loops, uh, as it branches from the vagus, it then loops beneath the aorta and ascends up between the trachea and the esophagus on the lateral side there, back up towards the larynx. Now, you'll remember that the aorta is aortic arch 6, which is the blood vessel, the artery of uh, the 6th pharyngeal arch. And uh, the recurrent laryngeal nerve is the nerve of the 6th laryngeal arch. So these structures are formed together And as the embryo has developed and lengthened and these structures have become further away, so the larynx has become further away from uh, the structures of the the sixth pharyngeal arch, this nerve has become stretched between the two, hence why it branches way down in the thorax, loops beneath the aorta and ascends back up to the larynx to innervate the structures there. On the right hand side, the uh the right recurrent laryngeal nerve starts down in the root of the neck, so a bit higher not quite as uh, as deep as on the uh, the left side. The right recurrent laryngeal nerve loops beneath the right subclavian artery, which is the artery of um, which was a aor- the fourth aortic arch it loops around the right subclavian artery and ascends back up to the to the larynx um so why is it different on both sides well uh for one on the on the left hand side the Left recurrent laryngeal nerve is held down by the continuing aorta, Um, the sixth aortic arch has completely persisted and descends, there's no way um, to bypass that. Um, The right recurrent laryngeal nerve, well, the right sixth aortic arch has persisted as the right pulmonary artery, but part of it degenerated. Um it, it hasn't exi- it hasn't remained in its entirety. And the right uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve hasn't been tied down by it. So as the uh, as this part of the embryo is lengthened, as these structures have become further apart, um, it's been able to it's been able to, occur, uh, to rise up on the right hand side, as it were, whereas the left recurrent laryngeal nerve has been tied down. So both of these nerves pass back up to the larynx, um and they are Uh, sensory to the larynx, the laryngeal wall, uh, beneath the vocal cords, and their motor to all intrinsic muscles of the larynx except for the cricothyroid muscle, because we just said the cricothyroid muscle is innervated by the superior laryngeal nerve. Okay, now let's recap. This is interesting. So, if we look at some parts of this, if we look at the pharynx, for example, um, the nasopharynx, innervated by the maxillary branch of the trigeminal nerve. So the nasopharynx sensory innervation comes from um, the fifth cranial nerve, from the first pharyngeal arch. The oropharynx uh, takes its sensory innervation from the glossopharyngeal nerve, the nerve of the third arch via fibers in the pharyngeal plexus. The laryngopharynx is innervated, uh, takes sensory innervation from the vagus nerve, again by the pharyngeal plexus. Um, so as we descend about down the pharynx, we can see that the sensory innervation comes from um, sub- sequential um, pharyngeal arch nerves. But what about the facial nerve? Well, let's look at the tongue. You'll remember that the special sensation of taste um, is carried by both the facial nerve, cranial nerve 7, and the glossopharyngeal nerve, cranial nerve 9. The anterior two-thirds of the tongue, taste is carried um, by the facial nerve. In the posterior two-thirds of the tongue, the sensation of taste is carried by the glossopharyngeal nerve. So imagine this tongue, um, the tongue developing kind of in a in an upright position. So you see how the nerve of each pharyngeal arch is linked to, you know, almost discrete segments of the developing um, pharynx, uh, deep face, and neck. Um. Okay, so we've pretty much talked about uh, nerves, blood vessels, and cartilage. Uh, nerves, and blood vessels, and muscle. And we've brought it all together there. Let's look at the cartilage. I mentioned that each pharyngeal arch also has um, a piece of cartilage within it. So of course this cartilage is going to go on and form connective tissue structures, um, bone ligaments, that sort of thing. And the cartilage of the first arch is referred to as Meckel's cartilage. The cartilages of the first arch are going to go on and uh, contribute to Uh, some of the small bones of the ear, the malleus and the incus. They're going to contribute to um, the sphenomandibular ligament, which isn't crucial to know, but it's going to go on to help the formation of the mandible. So remember, uh, mandible, muscles of mastication, etc., are linked to the first arch. So the bone of the mandible is... uh, Going to form kind of from the first arch cartilage. Now the mandible doesn't form in the no- normal manner, so endochondral ossification would occur uh, by a uh, a piece of cartilage, pretty much in the shape of the future bone, being replaced. By bone, this isn't what ex- exactly what happens in the mandible. Uh, the mandible forms via intramembranous ossification. In that, this first arch cartilage, this Meckel's cartilage, kind of you know, it forms a, a horseshoe-shaped kind of primordium um, of the future mandible, and bone forms around it separately to the cartilage. And around it doesn't replace the cartilage; the bone forms and the cartilage disappears. So that's intramembranous ossification, which is an interesting note of first arch development. Uh, the second arch, uh, the second arch cartilage is kind of known as Reichert's cartilage, and this is going to go on and contribute to. Uh, The development of another little bone in the ear, stapes. So we have malleus incus and stapes formed by the connective tissue of first and second pharyngeal arches. The second arch, the second pharyngeal arch is also going to form the styloid process. Do you remember that little pointy bit of bone sticking out of uh, the base of the skull almost? and it's going to contribute to the stylohyoid ligament, so the ligament passing from the styloid process to uh, the hyoid bone. And there's also the suggestion there, and this is true, that the second pharyngeal arch is going to contribute to the development of part of the hyoid bone, yeah, you know, kind of to the, the superior part of the hyoid bone. Therefore, the third pharyngeal arch, its connected tissue its cartilage piece is going to contribute to the remaining parts of the hyoid bone. So the hyoid bone is actually formed from second and third pharyngeal arches. The fourth and sixth pharyngeal arches then, uh, cartilage from here is going to go on and form what? Any guesses? We've already seen where the fourth and sixth pharyngeal arches contribute to development of the neck. They're going to form the laryngeal cartilages. Okay, pretty good, there we go. We've looked at the pharyngeal arches and we've looked at uh, the nerves, the muscles, uh, the cartilages and the blood vessels uh, of the pharyngeal arches and what they go on and form. A little bit more to do yet, we're not quite done. Um, Associated with the pharyngeal arches, think about lumps of tissue swelling out of uh, the sides of uh, the embryo, in between those lumps in between the pharyngeal arches we have clefts externally and pouches internally so the clefts then are um, in between the arches uh, and the clefts are um, ectoderm the pouches are then endoderm okay so the uh, the first pharyngeal pouch is between uh, pharyngeal arches one and two. Uh, The first pharyngeal cleft is between pharyngeal arches, uh, the first and second pharyngeal arches. Um, As far as the clefts go, pharyngeal cleft or pharyngeal groove, grooves one, two, three and four, the first persists and the second, third and fourth kind of degenerate. Uh, interestingly, if you think about uh, the structures that pharyngeal arches, uh, the first and second pharyngeal arches are going to go on and form, you can maybe guess what uh, the first pharyngeal cleft or groove is going to form. Pharyngeal arches one and two, yeah, we said they're going to form many structures of of, of the face and what have you, we also mentioned the bones of the ear. and. The first pharyngeal cleft is going to form the external part of the ear, so the external auditory meatus, or external acoustic meatus, that hole that's passing from the external ear back to the eardrum. Uh, The pouches, well we've already talked about the pouches, Um, when we looked at the embryology of the endocrine system, the first pharyngeal pouch we didn't talk about that goes on to form uh, the tubotympanic recess a space there which is going to give rise to parts of the middle and the inner ear drum uh, the inner ear so the eardrum tympanic cavity uh, the auditory tube you know the Eustachian tube passing from uh the middle ear the inner ear to the uh nasopharynx Uh, The second pouch, well, that's pretty much going to be, the palatine tonsil is going to form there, so it's going to be pretty much uh, obliterated by the development of the palatine tonsil. But we looked at the third uh, and fourth pouches, and uh, if you remember the development of the inferior and superior parathyroid glands, they form from uh, the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches, respectively. Uh, The inferior parathyroid gland uh, descends uh, with the forming thymus and overtakes the superior parathyroid gland. Um, And the fourth pouch is going to also contribute to the development of the ultimopharyngeal body, the ultimobranchial. Uh, Clearly, if you want to review that, just go back to the endocrine embryology podcast okay I think we're done here and that looks about 30 minutes to me good uh, there we go we've covered the uh, pharyngeal arches and hopefully uh, as you go through your anatomy or maybe you've already <clears throat> you've already done your anatomy uh, for the head and neck hopefully this will help 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 uh, link things together group things together make it easier for you to uh, remember or maybe even uh, work out answers and ideas rather than having to just remember big lists of uh, innovations and structures and what have you. Anyway, all done. Thank you for listening. See you next time.